an interesting passage, isn't it? We are exiting the time of Lent and Easter where we get to contemplate the sort of upside-down nature of the gospel. The good, the religious people, the in-crowd, those who would have been expecting places of honor in a potentially renewed kingdom, they are the ones that are disappointed, offended. They're wedded to the status quo, and therefore they reject the one who comes to disrupt it. While those on the margins, the disfavored, the disliked, the uncredentialed, the poor and the sick, the ostracized, these people find a place of belonging, a place of friendship. They find grace. We see this over and over and over again in the Gospels. But the Gospel writers, of course, didn't invent this sort of subversive good news. It's all through the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible as well. While in many places it appears in subtext, it appears in nuance, in the prophetic books, which we've been looking for during uh, the season of Lent, the prophetic books like Jonah, this subtext, this upside-downness of the gospel is turned up to 11. As a preacher, at least, Jesus' message isn't all that new. He would have studied the prophets and the preachers who came before him. And of all of the Old Testament books, at least to me, Jonah seems to lay out the disruptive, upside-down nature of the gospel better than most and provides us with a sort of advanced copy of the gospel. Everything in this story is upside down. The prophets are pagans, and the pagans are prophets. The prophet Jonah, he's trying to escape from God. He's running from him, harboring this deep-seated suspicion and hatred towards those that God is calling him to minister to. And he debates God angrily about his mission. And he eventually decides that he'd rather die than include the Ninevites in God's plan. Now, the, the pagans, represented here by the sailors, who take Jonah on their boat, these pagan sailors turn out to be more compassionate than the prophet. These pagans we see in the book of Jonah, they pray when the storm comes. They repent and they follow God once his word reaches them. People you see with every reason to receive God and his mission reject him. And people with every reason to reject God end up accepting him. Don't we see this throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels and in places like Jonah and the prophetic books. Now, the stage is set in chapter one, of course, which we didn't have time to read. We're giving kind of an overview of this whole book this morning. But the stage is set in chapter one, when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness that has come up 
underneath the nostrils of God. What an image. The evil is so great in Nineveh that it is risen to heaven. And this entire city becomes a sort of microcosm of human corruption and of lostness. It's a culture of war and a culture of violence, and they are viciously cruel, chewing up smaller nations. And that's the reputation of Nineveh, but they are also Israel's sworn enemy. You'd think that Jonah would relish the opportunity to head down to Nineveh and to tell them, you know, God really doesn't like you people. You would think he'd be excited about this prospect. We've seen these kinds of people right on street corners or on college campuses with with signs and a bullhorn, ostensibly preaching the good news of God's love for humanity, but it, it comes off more as condemnation and scorn. People love to enlist God in their dislike of other people. But even though the command is to go preach against them, Jonah seems to know intuitively that there's, there's something more going on. There's something more to God's mission for the people of Nineveh. So what does he do? He heads to Tarshish. This is the farthest place in the sort of known world for Jonah in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he boards the ship And while in transit, we are told that this great storm comes. And it's such a horrendous storm that that sailors, these hardened mariners, they start throwing stuff overboard. And then, then they begin praying. Now, where's Jonah while the pagans are on on board praying? Where's Jonah in all of this? He's down in the hold of the ship, asleep. (laughs) Sound familiar? Jesus sort of pulled the same thing with his disciples. Well, they go down and they find Jonah and ask what anyone would ask. How can you sleep at a time like this? Get up here and pray like the rest of us. Pray like us pagans. And then they ask, who could be responsible for this? And Jonah, in a very matter-of-fact sort of way, says, I am a Hebrew, and I worshiped the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Oops. (laughs) What have you done? These pagans want to know. The pagans believe that the prophet must have lost his mind. What have you done? You run from God on the seas that he created? Jonah is living dangerously, and he's putting others in danger. But the writer chooses the pagans rather than the prophet to bear the revelatory word of God. Now, There's something also embedded in Jonah, the name, and it's part of the story. It's part of this revelation. Dove in the New Testament is meant to symbolize purity. It's white, it's pure, but 
Guess what it means in the Old Testament? It means silly. In Hebrew, it means senseless, or maybe what we would say, moronic. You are trying to escape from the God who made the seas in a boat? He zigged when he should have zagged. What have you done? They believe that Jonah has brought this deadly storm upon them. And yet, yet, these pagans row furiously to, to the shore to try and save him. Now, eventually, he's thrown overboard, and a great fish comes and swallows him. Now, maybe you're thinking, a great fish? A fish so great in the Mediterranean that he could swallow a human being? Let's be serious. And Christians through the years have tried to answer this. It's a baleen whale or a whale shark, and these things are, are huge. So it's, it's possible. William Jennings Bryan in the Scopes Monkey Trials said that a God who can make a whale and can make a man and make both of them He can make both of them do what he pleases. To which we could say, sure, we can't argue the basic logic of that. If if God is God, then why not? But trying to explain how the fantastical features of this story could have happened, it presumes that we're reading a certain kind of literature, that Jonah is giving us a journalistic kind of report, that this is narrative rather than prophecy. Now, incidentally, I shared this about 11 years ago, this idea that maybe Jonah is prophetic, maybe Jonah is parabolic, that we have here a variety of literary devices in Jonah, parody, satire, and parable. And 11 years ago, when I was one year old in the church, uh, I had only been at In-Town for a year, still getting my my sea legs, as it were. And uh, a family heard me say this, and that was all that it took for them to leave the church. But why? Why? Why was this so threatened? threatening? This book isn't cataloged in the historical books like Kings or Chronicles. Jesus told stories all the time and asking where, whether the prodigal son was literal history sort of misses the point of the parables. Maybe we should ask, what, what is the bigger mi- miracle that God's sustaining a human in the belly of a fish, perhaps? Or is the bigger miracle a nationalistic recalcitrant prophet like Jonah learning to show grace? To his enemies. Now the narrative shows Jonah going continuously down, down to Joppa, down to the interior of the boat, down into the sea, down to the very roots of the mountains. Where are the roots of the mountains? They are at the bottom of the ocean. It's a desolate, lifeless place, at least for humans. And then finally, down to the pit, or the realm of the dead. And what's Jonah's state of mind as he moves farther away from God? 
Well, the book tells us that he is alone in the hold of the boat. Alone. He feels distressed and banished. His life is ebbing away. These are the characterizations of Jonah's state of mind in chapter 2. And what we see, every step away from God is a step farther down. It's a step nearer to death. His, His prideful heart, his thinking that he knows better than God, has left him lonely. It has left him despondent. And he is, in a sense, choosing spiritual poverty to avoid bringing grace to someone else. And what is God's response? He pursues him. God pursues this recalcitrant prophet with his voice, with a storm, and finally with a fish, where we are told that he spends a rather nasty, smelly, a rather wet three days. Now Jonah comes out of this experience with a mood of gratitude to God. And he says, you brought my life up from the pit. And he sings a song of thanksgiving. Hanging out in the belly of a fish doesn't seem like a very pleasant way to spend a few days, but Jonah, he sees it as deliverance. He sees it as rescue. He gets another chance. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh and give them my message. And what happens in Nineveh? We are told that they believe. They repent and they fast. This is great news. Even the king is involved. And we are told that Nineveh is a very large city. These are These are Billy Graham crusade kind of numbers. Jonah has led one heck of a crusade. He's got to be ecstatic, right? Well, at the end of chapter 3, as we turn into chapter 4, verse 1 says that Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said? I knew, I knew you would be like this. I knew you'd do this. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. To see this confirmed, shouldn't this be good news? Because that means we can be included. Shouldn't a God who relents from sending calamity be spectacular news? To have this confirmed, to see that God would rather embrace than destroy the enemies of Israel. Instead of good news, Jonah sees this as a reason to die. It's better for me to die than to live, Jonah says. Now, this story is often told in a way to convey sort of the virtue of resilience. 
that Jonah perseveres, that Jonah gets a second chance and he takes it. And sure, there's some of that there. But the problem with Jonah is much more malevolent than just lacking follow-through. The problem with Jonah is much more complex. It's a much more psychologically sophisticated than just a simple refusal to obey. Why? Why did he not want to go? For Jonah, the Ninevites should be beyond God's grace. He wants, jo- he wants God to be for him and his people Israel, but not with them. He can't fathom a God without enemies. What have they done to deserve your grace? Now, friends, these stories, they're not given to us just for posterity's sake. Regardless of what you might believe about the historicity of these events, we should all be able to agree that the book of Jonah wasn't given to us just for our historical awareness, just so that we can know that this historical event happened somewhere deep in Israel's history. We're not meant to conclude merely that, wow, the Israelites and the Ninevites really didn't get along, and to know that as historical artifact, but rather to ask, who are the Ninevites in our lives, and what does that tell us about us? Are the Ninevites in your lives, are they Democrats or Republicans? Are they the left or the right? Are they illegal immigrants or corporate elites? Are the Ninevites a parent who has wronged you, a spouse who has left you, a co-worker who has undercut you? And what does staying in a perpetual cycle of conflict tell us about our understanding of grace? If we're willing to live in this binary relationship with these people indefinitely, if we cannot see them as receiving the same grace as we have and therefore extend grace to them, what does it tell us? Our willingness to stay in perpetual conflict with anyone, what does that tell us about our understanding of grace? What have I mislearned? about the mercy of God if I find myself secretly resenting other people's success or wishing for their downfall? What does it tell me about how I have learned the truth about God if I find myself drawn to political ideologies that need an other, that need a scapegoat, that seem to exist primarily to exclude certain types and classes of people. Jonah tells God, I told you. I knew you would do this. I knew all along that you wouldn't do what you should do, God, which is punish those nasty, brutish Ninevites. Isn't it funny that 
the religious people in the Bible tend to be more religious than God. The religious people in the Bible tend to be more righteous than God, at least in their own minds. Well, he quotes back to God as if God is not aware of Exodus 34, about God that he punishes wickedness to the third and fourth generation, but he extends his love to a thousand generations. What is Jonah saying here? God, sure you judge, sure you're holy, but how can you be so cavalier with your grace? He's whining that God might be merciful. He's whining that God might live up to his his own press. Friends, who are your Ninevites? And do you really want them to receive the pardon and care and love of God that you claim you have received? Who are your Ninevites? Who's unworthy of God's love in your mind? The painful truth is that this insider-outsider mindset is often grounded in the belief that it's, that it's you who are unworthy of God's love. Insiders hate outsiders because they feel that their belonging is somehow undermined, undermined by the outsiders coming in. If they get in, then anyone can get in. And it undermines our sense of belonging by merit. We cling to these boundary markers of inside and out because we're not sure we really belong. We keep others out because we believe that our own status might be tenuous and up for grabs. The story of Jonah Its subversive message, which Jesus dials up in his preaching, implies that those who have received grace, the grace of God, should be most liberated in their love. They should be most excessive in their forgiveness granted to others. They should be most generous in extending mercy. Jonah or dove. It means silly, senseless, moronic. But also, Jonah means son of Amittai, which is son of my faithfulness. God pursues the Ninevites, but this shouldn't be a threat to Jonah. This is what what God is always doing. He's always overflowing all of the boundaries that we put upon him. He's always including the overlooked, the ill-prepared, those whose reception of grace is the most upsetting to us. He is faithful. And even Jonah, the recalcitrant prophet, is a son of Amittai, a son of God's faithfulness. And friends, the good news as we close is that God's grace is never, never, a zero-sum game. There's always more room inside. Whether you are 
the virtuous pagan or the anxious Pharisee. God offers his welcome to you, his forgiveness, and his eternal faithfulness. For his son came to God's enemies and preached grace. And while Jonah existed in, for three days in the belly of a whale, Jesus spent three days in a tomb only to rise, only to rise over our sin and the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these lovely people who have joined this call this morning. And I know them. I know them personally, but I also know them that, like me, is a part of humanity, that they and I are broken and in need of repair. We need to find a home whose foundations are eternal, whose welcome never ceases, a place of belonging that we can never be kicked out of. And Father, I pray that those realities would change the way that we think about you, change the way that we think about others, change the way that we think about crime and punishment and mercy. Father, let us be tender to the needs of other people and let us see it as our mission to extend your grace and care to the most unlikely people as judged by us. Father, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.